Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, we can wait on you because you are trustworthy. You have shown yourself through history, through the Bible, through our lives, that you are faithful. And so we have confidence we can wait because you have the best timing for us. And I pray that in these next few moments, you will touch hearts and lives with the truth of your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. Good to see you all. I get to speak today on my favorite topic, which is the radical grace of God. You can define the grace of God. You just need eight words to define the grace of God. Here they are. Grace is favor shown by God to sinners. That's what grace is. Grace is favor shown by God to sinners. At its core, it's the unmerited, unconditional gift of God's love and eternal life that we can never earn, we can never deserve, but which we can receive freely through repentance and faith. In fact, the whole Bible is a grand narrative about the grace of God. John 1 verse 14 says this about Jesus. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. So Jesus embodied grace. But it's interesting, when Jesus wanted to teach his disciples about grace, he never pulled out a dictionary definition. He didn't you know, take out World Book Encyclopedia and read them the entry about grace. Instead, he told stories that could illuminate different aspects of grace. So for instance, when he wanted his followers to feel the emotional punch the emotional impact of grace, he told the story about the prodigal son. And so if someone asked me to describe the radical grace of God, I would take my cue from Jesus, and I would tell three true stories to help us get a glimpse of what his grace is like. The first story takes place in Korea, right after the Korean War. A young Korean woman gave birth to a child whose father was a foreign soldier. He went home after the war. She gives birth to this child. This child looks different than the other Korean children. This little girl had light-colored hair, was curly hair, and, and she was severely rejected by society. In fact, in that day, many mothers actually killed their mixed babies because of the social pressure and the shame that they would feel. But this woman loved her daughter. And she did her best to try to raise her. But by the time the little girl got to age seven, the harassment, the rejection of the culture was so strong that this mother did something that you and I just can't imagine. She abandoned her daughter to live on the streets. And this little girl wasn't alone. There were packs of youngsters, rejected children, living on the streets. They would be sleeping under bridges and in caves and in abandoned buildings. They would eat locusts and grass and um, things that they would steal from farmer's fields, things like melons. And this little girl learned that if she was really patient and she waited outside the, uh, the home of a, of, a, of a family of mice, that when the mouse comes out, she could grab it and she would eat the whole mouse, the tail and ears and everything. So she learned, can you imagine being seven years old and left to your own 
struggles to live on the streets. Unbelievable. And she was, she was taunted ruthlessly because of her mixed nature. They call her the ugliest word in the Korean language, tuki, which meant alien devil. Well, it didn't take long for her to draw some conclusions about herself. Years later, she would say, when you hear what you are when you're a little child, day after day after day, you begin to believe that about yourself. I believe that anyone could do whatever they wanted to me physically because I wasn't a person. I was inhuman. I was dirty. I was unclean. I had no name. I had no identity. I had no family. I had no future. And I hated myself. So for two years, can you imagine, for two years, she barely survived, barely scraped by on the streets. And then finally she contracted cholera. And she was dying. And she crawled up on a pile of trash to die. But... There was a Christian nurse by the name of Iris Erickson. And she happened to be walking down the street where the little girl was dying on the pile of trash. Now, uh, Ira, or, or, um, Iris Erickson's um, uh, responsibility there, she was a Lutheran, she was a Christian, but she's kind of personal about her faith. Um, but her role was to find abandoned children and rescue them, but infants, infants, babies and bring them to a brand new orphanage that had just opened in the village so that perhaps someone would adopt them. So she's walking along, and she sees this child dying of cholera on a pile of trash. And her heart goes out to her, but there was nothing she could do. I mean, first of all, a little girl was nine years old. Nobody adopts nine-year-old children. And um, she was dying anyway. And so um, Miss Erickson walked past her, but as she did, she felt a heaviness in her legs. She's thinking, what the, what's going on? And she could barely walk. And then she heard in her native Swedish language, she heard the voice of God saying, she's mine. She's mine. And so she turned and she went back and she scooped up this little nine-year-old girl and took her and found some medical treatment for her. And, and, and she was nursed back to health. And then she brought her to the orphanage. Now you say orphanage, it sounds like a really fancy place. It was a very primitive, primitive orphanage. But at least it was a roof over the children's heads. At least there was some food that they would get. Well, word soon came that an American couple was going to come and adopt the next day a baby boy. And so there's great excitement among the children in the orphanage because at least one baby was going to have a future. And so this little girl, she was the oldest in the orphanage. Her job was to clean up all the little baby boys so they'd be ready for this couple to come and perhaps adopt one of them. And so the next day, the man and the wife came. And the little girl said later, it was like Goliath had come to life. I saw that man with his huge hands lift up each baby, and I knew he loved every one of them as if they were his own. I saw tears running down his face, and I knew if they could, they would have taken the whole lot home with them. But then he saw me out of the corner of his eye. So listen to her description of herself. Now let me tell you, I was nine years old. I didn't even weigh 30 pounds. I was a scrawny thing. I had worms in my body. I had lice in my hair. I had boils all over me. I was full of scars. I wasn't a pretty sight. 
But that man came over to me, and he rattled off something in English, and I looked up at him. And then he took his huge hand, and he laid it on the side of my face. What what was he saying by that gesture? He was saying, this is the child we want to adopt. I'll tell you what, if you ask me for a picture of the radical grace of God, I'd start with that scene. Because you see, Jesus peers beneath the ugliness of our sin. He looks beyond the scars of our failure and he sees a soul that is made in the image of God and he wants to take his nail-pierced hands and cup your face in his hands and say, this is the child who I want to adopt. If you're like me, you look around and you think, everybody else has kind of got it all together. But you know, I know the truth about myself. And if you feel like uh, other people knew the real you, that you'd be uh, as rejected as that little Korean girl. But the amazing thing about Jesus is he does see the real you, and he still wants to adopt you. Why? Because he sees you differently than you see yourself. He sees you through heaven's eyes, through heaven's eyes. That was the name of a song written by Phil McHugh a few years ago about an orphan being adopted and about Jesus. And here's the refrain. The refrain said, in heaven's eyes, there are no losers. In heaven's eyes, no hopeless cause. Only people like you with feelings like me, amazed by the grace we can find in heaven's eyes. Here's the thing. God sees you through heaven's eyes, and he wants to adopt you forever as his own. And if you ask me, what is the radical grace of God like? I would start there. But then something incredible happened with that little nine-year-old girl. The man was reaching out to her, and she said later, the hand on my face felt so good, and inside I was saying, oh, keep that up. Don't let your hand go. But nobody had ever shown that kind of affection for me, and I didn't know how to respond. So listen to this. So I yanked his hand off my face, and I looked up at him, and I spit on him. And I spit on him again, and she ran away, and she hid in the closet. I mean, can you imagine Her window of opportunity is opened up, and what does she do? She slams it shut. She spits in his face. And yet, if the truth were known, haven't most of us done something like that in our lives? I mean, think back. Can you recall a time in your life where you felt particularly spiritually sensitive, when you sensed the presence of God, when you sensed that he was reaching out to you, where you were perhaps more spiritually open than normal? And what happened? Maybe you were a child in Sunday school class and the teacher was talking to you about the love of God and you felt drawn to God and yet you got a little older, you went to high school, it wasn't cool to be a Christian, you kind of went another direction. Or maybe at your wedding, before the wedding, the minister was encouraging you to make Christ the center of your new home and you were spiritually sensitive and it made sense and, and you were drawn to that. But then with the busyness of life and career and all that, you just sort of let that spiritual receptivity die out. Or maybe you were facing a medical crisis or a financial crisis or a child rearing crisis. And in desperation, you called out to God in the middle of that crisis and you felt his love and his guidance and his presence And you made promises to him in the midst of your desperation. But then when the crisis passed, 
kind of forgot about the promises and went on life as usual. It's not like you slammed the window of opportunity shut, just kind of drifted shut on its own. Can you remember a time like that? I can, when I was young. I mean, as amazing as it seems to me, looking back on my life, there were times when I just let that window of opportunity slide shut. Maybe you have too. Well, let me tell you something incredible about the radical grace of God. God is a lot like that man and that wife at the orphanage. Because they understood what was behind that little girl's reaction. They understood her pain and her trauma and her hurt. And so the next day, despite that initial rejection, the next day they came back and they pointed to that little girl and said, this is still the girl who we want to adopt. And they adopted that child and gave her a name, Stephanie, and they got her the medical care that she needed and they loved and raised that child as their own. And today, she's my friend. And she's a mother, and she's happily married. She's a follower of Jesus Christ, and she actually has an adoption ministry to help people adopt the unlikely orphans of the world. Friends, even though there may have been a time in your life where you figuratively spit in the eye of God, or you turned down his grace, you turned your back on him, you need to know he has never turned his back on you. You see, the danger is not on Jesus' side. The danger is on your side. That if you um, habitually uh, turn a deaf ear to the call of God in your life, there's the risk that in the future, it gets harder and harder and harder to hear that call. So if the Spirit of God is working inside of you, and if you're sensing God reaching out to you, then my advice is grab the spiritual opportunity. Pursue God because you know what? He's already pursuing you. So that's the first thing I tell someone about the radical grace of God. He loves you. He wants to adopt you and spend forever with you. In fact, the Bible talks about adoption. Romans 8 verse 23 says, we too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. So that's the first thing I tell someone about the radical grace of God. But there's something else you need to know about God's grace, and that comes from the second story. True story again about a woman who was baptized at a church where I was a pastor before coming to Texas. We were doing a baptism service uh, at our church, and we did something a little unusual. We had a big wooden cross on the stage. And before people were baptized, we gave them a piece of paper and a pencil, and we had them write down some of the sins for which they're particularly grateful that God had forgiven them. And to fold that piece of paper and then come up on the platform and pin that piece of paper to the wooden cross. Because Colossians 2.14 says that our sins are nailed to the cross of Christ and thereby completely paid for by his atoning death. And then they turn, they come, and they're baptized. So I want to read you a letter I got shortly after a baptism service. A woman wrote me and said, Lee, I remember my fear. The most fear I ever remember, get that, the most fear I ever remember, as I wrote as tiny as I could on that piece of paper, the word abortion. I was so scared that someone would open up the paper and read it and find out it was me. 
I almost wanted to walk out of the auditorium during the service. The guilt and the fear were that strong. But when my turn came, I walked up toward the center of the stage, toward the cross, and I pinned the paper there, and I was directed over to a pastor to be baptized. He looked me straight in the eyes, and I thought for sure he was going to read in my eyes the terrible secret I had kept from everybody for so long. But instead, I felt like God was telling me, I love you. It's okay. You are forgiven. You are forgiven. I felt so much love for me, a terrible sinner. That's the first time I ever really felt forgiveness and unconditional love. And it was unbelievable and it was indescribable. Friends, is there a secret from your past that is souring your soul? Is there something you've never revealed to anybody because you've got so much regret over it, you don't even want to discuss it? Maybe it was a promise that you broke to someone. Maybe it was hateful words that you said that you never took back. Maybe it was um, regrets involving your kids or your parents or uh, a friend. Maybe there was a time you should have stepped in and helped someone in need, but you didn't. You shrank back and you've always regretted it. Or maybe it's a cumulative weight of guilt of things that you've done in your life or you haven't done that you wish you had. Well, let me tell you something about the radical grace of God. He not only wants to cup your face in his nail-pierced hands and tell you he wants to adopt you as his child, but he also wants to forgive you and ease whatever burden of guilt is weighing down your soul. The Bible declares over and over again that complete forgiveness is available. The Lord says in Isaiah 43, 25, I, even I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sin no more. Yet that when God forgives you, he forgets it ever happened. Can you imagine that? He chooses to act as though it never occurred in the first place. Psalm 103 verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. I mean, some of us have been Christians for a long time, and we've forgotten that moment when we first felt unconditional love and total forgiveness. You know what? It is indescribable. It is unbelievable. It is powerful. Let's not lose the wonder and the joy that comes with that grace. And here's the deal. God will not only forgive your past, he will rewrite your future. He'll rewrite your future. In other words, through his grace, he can transform us and put meaning into our lives that we can't do on our own. And that brings me to the third true story, which is about a man by the name of Billy Moore. Billy Moore grew up poor in the South in Georgia, got in trouble as a kid all the time. He would break into garages and steal tools and other things and sell them, and um, he was constantly in trouble. He joined the Army thinking maybe that would straighten him out. That didn't help. He ended up living in a trailer north of Atlanta, and he needed cash. He didn't have any money. And he and a friend were talking one night and drinking and his friend said, hey, I know a guy who's a grandfather. He lives in another trailer. He doesn't believe in banks. He keeps his money under his bed. 
And Billy Moore took another slug of whiskey and said, really? So a drunken Billy Moore got a gun and sought out this other trailer, and he broke into the trailer, and there was a confrontation with this elderly grandfather, and in the process, Billy Moore shot him dead. And then he stole $5,600 from under the bed and ran away. Well, it didn't take long for the police to figure out it was Billy Moore that committed that crime. And they came knocking on his door that night, and they handcuffed him, and they dragged off Billy Moore. And here Billy Moore is sitting the first night in jail, realizing for the first time he has no future. He has no hope. There was an electric chair sitting down the hallway, and sooner or later, he's going to get strapped into it, and they're going to kill him. But shortly after his arrest, a local church heard about this guy arrested for this terrible murder of this innocent grandfather. But they went to see Billy Moore, this husband and wife, a pastor and his wife. And they shared with Billy Moore the grace of God. And they talked about the fact that God can forgive you of your sin. And God wants to adopt you, Billy, as his son. And then they said, Billy, God can give you a fresh start and a new chance at life. And Billy looked at them dumbfounded and said, what the heck are you talking about? You don't understand. I went into somebody's house and I murdered him during a robbery. I'm all out of fresh starts. My life is over. There's an electric chair sitting down the hall from me. I'm going to die in that chair before too long. It's just too late for me to get a fresh start. But the pastor said, Billy, it's never too late. God loves you. He wants to adopt you. He wants to fling open the gates of heaven for you. And he will find a way to make your life count. Well, Billy not only heard the words about Jesus coming from this pastor and his wife, he saw Jesus in their faces. He heard Jesus in their tone of voice and the words that they spoke. And he said later, you know, nobody ever told me that Jesus loves me and died for me. It was a love I could feel. It was a love I wanted. It was a love that I needed. And so Billy Moore, as broken and as hopeless of an individual as you're ever going to find, said yes that night to God's radical grace and being adopted as God's son forever. And he was baptized in a rusty jailhouse bathtub. And Billy Moore would never be the same. He went into court and he confessed I mean, he said, I'm not going to lie to you. I, I, I killed him during the robbery. And they found him guilty. And sure enough, they sentenced him to die in the electric chair. But you know, our court system takes a long time. And so it took 16 years for Billy's case to cycle up and down through the court system until he faced the electric chair. And in the meantime, Billy opened himself up more and more to God. He became a new person. In fact, he became a model prisoner. The, the guards had a nickname for him. They called him the peacemaker because it was Billy who brought calm to a place that used to be filled with hate and violence and despair. In fact, Billy led so many Bible studies on death row, led so many inmates to faith in Jesus Christ, led so many guards to faith in Jesus Christ. The whole tenor, the whole atmosphere, the whole environment of death row changed to a place of peace and love and grace. Billy took 32 correspondence courses from a Bible college while he was on death row. 
He became such an effective counselor that some local churches, if they had a troubled teenager, they would send him to death row to be counseled by this man in a cage. Friends, the question has never been, will God forgive you? It's not the issue. The Bible says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. No, the question is, will you let God forgive you? If he can forgive a killer like Billy Moore, what sin have you possibly committed that is beyond the grace of God? If he can forgive the crime of murdering an innocent grandfather in his own home, what have you done that you think is too egregious for God to forgive? And it's not a question of whether God can turn your life around and make it count. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, when someone becomes a Christian, he becomes a brand new person inside. He's not the same anymore. A new life has begun. No, the question is, will you open your life up to the power of God to change you for good and to give you a purpose for life that goes beyond eating and drinking and going to sleep and going to work the next day? Friends, God cannot change your life unless you give it to him. I mean, if, if God can use a man in a cage like Billy Moore to make an eternal difference on so many other inmates and guards and so forth, how much more could he use you in your family, in your neighborhood, in this church, in this community, in this world? Well, after many years, the courts finally caught up with Billy Moore. And the death sentence had been affirmed over and over again all the way up to the Supreme Court and back. It was time to die. And the hours were ticking down to August the 22nd when Billy would be strapped into the electric chair. He was taken to a holding cell next to the electric chair where they shaved his head so the electrodes could be attached. And while he waited to be executed, his lawyers would call him up and try to encourage him. And I talked to some of those lawyers. I said, what was that like? And they said to me, Lee, it was the strangest thing. We'd call with the intention of consoling Billy, but it was Billy who would console us. Billy would say things like, are you guys doing okay? You gonna get through this all right? Are you coping with this? I mean, they told me with astonishment that even though Billy was the one facing imminent death, he was more concerned about how they were doing. Why was that? Because Billy Moore was ready to die. He was ready because Jesus had forgiven him, because Jesus had adopted him, because he'd been released from his guilt. And Billy knew, if Jesus loves me that much, I can trust what's going to happen to me after I die. But just seven and a half hours before they were going to pull the switch on the electric chair and kill Billy Moore, something amazing happened. The Georgia Pardon and Parole Board decided to hold an emergency hearing about a model prisoner named Billy Moore who had had such an incredible impact on so many people. And guess who came to that emergency hearing? The family of the victim who Billy Moore had murdered. And they did something extraordinary. They begged the board to spare the life of Billy Moore. They said many years ago, Billy asked us for our forgiveness, and we gave it to him. I mean, how can we not forgive him if God already has? And how could we not forgive Billy Moore if God has already forgiven us? The Atlantic Journal newspaper ran an editorial calling Billy Moore a saintly figure. Mother Teresa called the Pardon and Parole Board from India 
with just a simple suggestion. She said, just do what Jesus would do. Well, Billy Moore knew one thing beyond a reasonable doubt. He was guilty of an egregious crime. He murdered an innocent grandfather. And under the laws of the state of Georgia, he knew he deserved to die. And the electric chair was ready and it was waiting. But those five members of the Pardon and Parole Board looked out at this repentant man and they decided to do something so unprecedented it made the next day the front page of the New York Times. The board said unanimously, we are going to show grace to Billy Moore. And they threw out the death penalty and they set machinery in motion to set him free. And you know what happened in the room when they did that? As soon as they announced it, the entire room spontaneously began singing, amazing grace, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like Billy Moore. I mean, what else can you do in a moment like that but sing the anthem of forgiven people? I mean, that, friends, is just a small taste of what the radical grace of God is like. It is undeserved forgiveness. It is unmerited favor. It is outrageous compassion. It is incredible clemency. And can I tell you where Billy Moore is at this moment? He's in church in Rome, Georgia, where he lives, worshiping the God of radical grace. In fact, now he's an ordained minister at a church that's located between two public housing projects in Rome, Georgia. And he's a gentle man of compassion and prayer. And his special ministry is to minister to the troubled teenagers and young people in that community. People everybody else has written off. Billy loves them. And he points them toward the God of radical grace. And so Billy and I became friends. And I remember once where I was sitting with him in his house, sipping iced tea, and I said, you know, Billy, it's just the two of us here. No news media, no, no newspaper folks going to write an article. I said, could you just be totally honest with me? He said, well, yeah, of course, Lee, I'm always honest with you. I said, well, let me just ask you a question. Wasn't it really the prison rehabilitation system that changed you? And he laughed. He said, no, Lee, it wasn't that. I said, well, then, was it a self-help program or maybe you developed a positive mental attitude? He said, no, wasn't that stuff. I said, was it Prozac? (laughs) You know, was it transcendental meditation? Was it psychological counseling? (laughs) He said, come on, Lee, you know it wasn't any of that. And I did know it it wasn't any of that, but I wanted to hear him say it. I said, no, Billy, I want to hear you say it. What changed Billy Moore? And he looked at me and said, Lee, plain and simple, it was Jesus Christ. He changed me in ways I never could have changed on my own. He gave me a reason to live. He helped me do the right thing. He gave me a heart for others, and he saved my soul. And I was thinking, aren't those the very things we all need and want in our life? To have a reason to live that goes beyond just the mundane, everyday life? To have help to do the right thing? We know what we ought to do sometimes. We need help doing it, right? To have a heart for others. But most of all, that he would save our soul, that he would adopt us, forgive us, open heaven for us. 
Friends, that's the power of God's radical grace to change a life. So if you ask me about, Lee, tell me about the radical grace of God, I would tell those stories. God wants to forgive you, adopt you, relieve your guilt, inject purpose and meaning into your life to change your life for the good, to fling open the gates of heaven for you, all as a gift of his radical grace. It cost him everything. It cost him the death of his son on the cross. Jesus went to the cross to pay the penalty we deserve for the sins that we've committed so that he could offer forgiveness and eternal life as a free gift of his radical grace. So how do we receive that gift? How do we avail ourselves of that opportunity? How do we seize the spiritual opportunity? You know what we do? We do what Billy Moore did. Billy Moore went to court and told the truth. He was guilty. I mean, when we do that and we come before God and we tell him the truth, I know I'm guilty. I've done things I knew they were wrong before I did them. I did them anyway. I've sinned. And I understand my sin has separated me from God because God's perfect, God's pure, God's holy. I'm not. And so my sin has separated me from God. I don't want to be separated from God. I don't want to spend eternity separated from God. That's what hell is. I want to be reconciled with God. How can I be reconciled with God in this world and the world to come to receive this free gift of his radical grace? Have you done it? Have you received it? Are you sure? You know, the Bible says, these things are written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. God doesn't want you in a sense of confusion, apprehension, uncertainty about where you stand with him. You can know for a fact, I've received this radical gift of God's grace. I'm reconciled with God. I'm opening my life to him to change. I'm going to spend eternity with him in heaven. I've been adopted as his child. Do you know? Are you sure? Well, let me give you an opportunity right now. If you're not sure, wouldn't you like to be? Wouldn't you like to know? Let me give you that opportunity. The window of opportunity, friends, is opening. Don't slam it shut. Don't let it just shut on its own inertia. Seize the opportunity right now. Let's close our eyes and bow our heads. And if you want to take the step that Billy Moore took, I'm not going to ask you to do anything weird. Just in your heart, God will hear you. God knows your heart. Just in your heart, say this. Say, Father, right now I confess the obvious, which is that I am a sinner. I know that. I've done things I knew they were wrong before I did them. I did them anyway. I've sinned, and I'm sorry. And I want to confess that, but I want to turn from that. And in an attitude of repentance and faith, I want to receive. I want to receive this free gift of your radical grace. Father, forgive me for my sin. Relieve me of my guilt. Adopt me as your child forever. And change my life. And in the end, fling open the gates of heaven that we can spend eternity together. Thank you for loving me so much 
that you sent your son to die to pay the penalty I deserve for the sins I've committed. Help me, Father, to live the kind of life that you want me to live. Because from this moment on, I am yours. And now, Father, we know from Luke 15 that a party breaks out in heaven whenever a sinner repents and receives forgiveness through your son. So we celebrate now those that have received this radical gift of your grace. And we thank you that we can be part of a church that proclaims this message of hope and redemption and eternal life. Help us to have the courage to point people toward your radical grace that they might be transformed and reconcile with you forever. Give us opportunities to be bearers of your good news, to be strong salt and bright light to a dying world. And we will give you all of the glory. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, who is our forgiver and who is our leader and who is our very, very best friend. Amen. Hey church, thanks for listening to the Woodlands Church with Carrie Shook podcast. By listening, we hope that you're encouraged wherever you are. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to subscribe to our podcast so that you can get the latest messages each week. For more information on Woodlands Church, check out the description for a link to our website and how to connect with us. We hope you have a great week.